Hey everybody, this is Shane Claiborne, and I just wanted to tell you, if you haven't heard, uh, our brother Ron Sider has passed away. Uh, and Ron, uh, for those of you that don't know, has been a friend of Red Letter Christians from the very beginning. He is, uh, you know, regarded as one of the more influential evangelicals uh, in the past century. And his book, his kind of landmark book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, was hailed by many as one of the most significant books uh, from um, American Christianity in, in the last uh, generation. So he was also a dear friend. And uh, I've had the privilege of knowing Ron uh, for over 25 years. I met him as a professor at uh, Eastern University, and over the years, he became a dear friend and mentor. Uh, I, I can remember when we started The Simple Way, Ron said, uh, this is back in 1998, he said, keep Jesus as a center of everything, and uh, and you'll, you'll do just fine, and we've done our best to do that. Uh, he was there you know, from the very first meeting of Red Letter Christians is and has been a poor a core part of who we are over the decades since. And so we're going to air a few of the conversations we've had with Ron. One of his passions was championing life from womb to tomb, uh, helping us to really uh, embrace a comprehensive, expansive ethic of life and to stand against violence and death in every form. In fact, he wrote uh, a whole lot about that. And as I've been writing over the last few months, finishing a book, I've got some of Ron's books right here on my desk. I was on a phone call with him uh, just a few weeks ago as we celebrated uh, his victory over cancer. He's been battling uh, cancer and, and, uh, and then uh, we lost him to a heart attack. But we celebrate, you know, 82 years of his life, someone who whose entire life was about Jesus and justice. And I also am thinking of Arbutus, uh, who uh, they, they were married for uh, 59 years and had three kids. So we, we think of the family and remember them in our prayers. And every time I, I was with Ron, I just felt like I laughed hard. I got smarter. He helped shape my mind and my faith. And uh, Ron held together what too many Christians separate, things like Jesus and justice, faith and works, evangelism and social transformation. So we will miss him, but we uh, are confident that there is a celebration on the other side welcoming him home. So uh, thank you, Ron, for your life and for your witness. Uh, you've been a gift to me, a gift to Red Letter Christians, and a gift to the world. We celebrate you today and every day. Amen. Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be? Hi, this is Tony Campolo, and the other voice uh, 
is uh, that of uh, Shane Claiborne, and together we are interviewing Ron Sider. The name of the show is From Across the Pond. It's so-called because we put the show together here at Cabrini University and Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. That's Across the Pond. I mentioned Ron Sider. He's the guy we're interviewing today, and uh, he's well-known in the United Kingdom, even as he's well-known across the United States. Do you want to say yeah, more about bu- His book, uh, I mean, he's written, I, I think, like 50 books. I, we'll probably hear about He doesn't have an <laughs> unpublished thought, man. He's got all <laughs> his, kinds of books. His, uh, one of the most well-known books is Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, which was one of the first books that I remember reading that just woke me up, you know, shook me to this startling... Um, I, I guess, kind of state of Christianity and how we've ignored these, you know, over 2,000 verses of the Bible that talk about the poor. And, and, and also, like, you know, w- the, the tragedy of the world that we live in, where we, we have masses of people living in poverty and a handful of people that have way more than they could ever need or want. And uh, so it's great to have you, Ron. Thanks for joining us. Sure, gladly. Well, uh, what are you doing these days to promote the cause? I'm continuing to teach half-time, and uh, I'm uh, writing and uh, doing some speaking and uh, trying to um, slow down in recognition of the fact that I'm 78. (laughs) You're a youngster. I'm 83. You're you're just young compared to me, man. I wish I can't remember when I was as young as you are. So there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, I think a good place to start is sort of right there, Ron, is looking back like as, as you, you know, look back since your your um, some of your earliest work. Um, what are what are some of the things that you've seen um, change and evolve? Uh, uh, maybe, maybe some things that give you hope and some things that give you a little bit of despair. Yeah. Well, as I think about the last 40 years. Uh, and the book came out first in 1977. By the way, for the Brits, um, the best preface that I've ever had for any book was written by uh, my good friend um, David um, Watson from York. Oh, my. But three things. Uh, I think that there's been quite major change in the evangelical world in terms of um, uh, understanding the Bible's talking about God's concern for the poor and then acting on that. That's one. A second is that um, there's been amazing change in the evangelical world um, from the idea that evangelism, uh, saving souls, is our only or primary mission to saying that we're supposed to do evangelism and social action. And then third, at some levels, at the evangelical center, I would say, in this country, there's been a move away from a narrow political agenda that was, that was focused primarily just on um, uh, marriage and uh, and sex and abortion uh, to a broader what I call a completely pro-life agenda. Now that hasn't been reflected unfortunately in the way the white evangelicals voted in the last election, but uh, I see quite amazing change in those three areas. You uh, started an organization called Evangelicals for Social Action to carry out the vision uh, that you had in ministering to the poor and the oppressed of the world. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about ESA and where it stands right now and what it's doing right now? That's your organization. We started with the um, Chicago Declaration uh, in 1973, calling evangelicals to be more engaged on social justice issues, economic justice, racism, uh, peacemaking, um, 
dignity and equality of women and uh, evangelicals for social action as an organization grew out of that uh, initially trying to help evangelicals become more engaged in those issues and then realizing that we didn't want to lose the evangelism um, so uh, we started a major program that um, helped local congregations figure out how to combine evangelism uh, and social action and um, I led the organization um, for 40 years and in 2013 uh, turned that over we now have a um, very exciting uh, new executive director um, uh, Nikki Toyama Zeto uh, who uh, was an university uh, staffer led the Urbana uh, convention uh, for about uh, five years and uh, then was a VP at uh, International Justice Mission so she's um, leading in, in the new age and uh, we're moving ahead I'm delighted mm. And uh, what are some of the programs that ESA is promoting? I mean, what is it uh, endeavoring to do specifically uh, to uh, create this uh, holistic gospel? That's the phrase we use now, the whole gospel. You teach at Eastern uh, Seminary, which is called Palmer Seminary. Uh, and uh, the motto of Eastern and the motto of Palmer has been the whole gospel for the whole world. Mm. Part of the gospel uh, and a major part is telling people about the saving work of Jesus on the cross and resurrection. The other part is uh, to say uh, we want to uh, change the world uh, from the mess that it's in into the kingdom of God, knowing that Christ will come back and join us and bring that good work to fulfillment, uh, the whole gospel. So you've been Preaching yeah, the whole no, gospel. I think so, that, uh, I think that uh, one of the things I, I mentioned earlier that's really changed in the evangelical world uh, is a move away from we're just supposed to do evangelism to we're supposed to do word and deed. And there was a battle after Lausanne in 1974 had that important statement on um, uh, social responsibility, uh, but uh, a bunch of younger evangelicals uh, led that um, struggle. Samuel Escobar, Rene Padilla, Vinay Samuel, and, and so on. And at the most recent Lausanne in 2010 in Cape Town, virtually every speaker just assumed and took for granted and, and affirmed that we're supposed to do word and deed. That's a, that's a really big change. And it's not just at a theoretical, theological level. All over the world, uh, there are many, many more evangelical and Pentecostal um, congregations and ministries that are combining word and deed. I think that's a, a very exciting uh, and important uh, change. Mm -hmm. And in terms of God and the poor, you know, um, not anybody or not very many people were talking about the many, many verses in the Bible about God and the poor in 1977. Mm. Uh, an older friend of mine said, I've gone to evangelical Bible conferences for 60 years, Ron, and I've never once heard a sermon uh, on justice. You know, you know, it's incredible. But now, um, you know, Rick Warren, the most prominent evangelical leader uh, in the last 10 plus years, has been talking about mm. God and the poor a great deal. And we've got billions of dollars um, raised by evangelical belief and development agencies. So there's been real change in that area, too. Yeah. You know, uh, you mentioned Rick Warren. Uh, I heard him say, here I am. I have a doctor's degree a Ph.D. degree in New Testament studies, and I never really noticed how much the Bible talked about the poor. And yet there are over 2,000 verses of Scripture 
that call upon us to respond to the needs of the poor. And he said, how was it possible for me to get a Ph.D. in New Testament and studies in biblical uh, analysis and not see all the things that the Bible says about helping the poor. What blinded me? Uh, how did we explain that blindness? Because I'm sure he's not the only one. Yeah, no, it's, it was certainly widespread in the evangelical world, and I think it's still um, not understood um, you know, nearly broadly enough. Um, it's partly our self-interest, um, um, partly you know, we've been... Trained, trained by our tradition to read the Bible in a certain way. But the good news is that um, there's been really quite major change in that. You don't get um, pushback um, hardly at all uh, if you say that one of the major things uh, that the Bible says is that God and his faithful people have a powerful concern for the poor. That's okay today. Mm. Well, one of the things that you've uh, that that I, I I really love that you've done is this this work around the um, consistently pro life, you know, the whole pro life uh, ethic, and you've been writing a lot about that. I I think I've uh, given away more books than I can count um, of your your. You did this beautiful work of editing the words of the early Christians and just laying them all out there, showing how consistent. Um, their ethic of life and their stance against violence is in, in uh, uh, the the early church on killing, right, Ron? Uh, and what 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 uh, yeah. what are you seeing on that? Are you are you well, hopeful? Uh, yeah, there have been uh, many 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 um, books and articles written about the early church up until Constantine on killing, but nobody had ever collected. Um, everything that we have extant today, and I did that, um, all the writings and um, you know, stuff from archaeology and so on. And the title and of that book? Bottom line is that there's not a single uh, statement by a Christian author up until the time of Constantine um, who says that killing is okay. They say killing is wrong in terms of abortion, it's wrong in terms of capital punishment, and it's wrong uh, in uh, terms of war. Mm-hmm. And what's the name of the book again? Uh, the Early Church on Killing. The Early Church on That's Killing. source book. So you can go to Amazon or whatever and uh, get a copy of that book. I hope it's doing well in the marketplace. I find that that's well, I, really, really resonating with a lot of uh, like millennial Christians, post-evangelicals, or folks that are still want to stay in the evangelical camp. Is that they've they've seen this really inconsistent uh, ethic of life. Uh, um, you know, we don't have a political party that embodies that, or you know, a lot of most Christians you don't hear with a consistent ethic of life. Uh, although you know, you look at the Pope and Mother Teresa and others, and they've really embodied that and. I, I I wonder if you if you um uh are you what you, aren't you writing something on peace right now, Ron? Because that's that's another thing I think a lot of us are pretty worried well, about. You're one of the big peacemakers out there for the Christian community. You know, evangelicals for social action for decades defined itself as having a completely pro-life agenda. I said if you go back to the Bible and ask what it tells us that God's concerned about, it says that God uh, is concerned about. Uh, the sanctity of human life, and uh, the poor, uh, the family, uh, and racial justice, um, and creation care. And 
ESA promoted that. Um, in uh, 2004, the National Association of Evangelicals, it's the largest network of evangelicals in the U.S., about 30 million people represented, uh, endorsed unanimously in its huge 80-person or so board uh, the document called for the health of the nation. And that is its statement on its official policy with regard to um, public policy and politics. And it has, um, you know, the kind of statement you'd expect on sanctity of human life and uh, marriage, but it also, longest statement is on justice for the poor, a uh, good statement on creation care, and so on. And it says that faithful evangelical civic engagement must have a biblically balanced agenda. And um, a friend of mine, Dave Gushy, wrote a book recently where he said that the evangelical center is no longer captive to the religious right, um, a Jerry Falwell uh, kind of position. And um, uh, he said, you know, the University Christian Fellowship, the Christian colleges and universities and seminaries, Christianity Today, those kinds of evangelical center groups uh, are changing. Now, <laughs> that's the good news. The bad news is that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Um, which doesn't who doesn't represent a completely pro-life agenda, to put it mildly. Uh, so uh, at the official level, I think we've had real change moving toward a more completely pro-life agenda. Um, at the popular level, it certainly hasn't filtered down. Hey, this is uh, Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo. We have a great guest this week, Ron Sider, who uh, is an incredible friend, uh, uh, one of the most influential evangelicals, I think, of uh, our generation. And um, he wrote the book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, uh, and uh, tons and tons of other books. We're talking about his work with Evangelicals for Social Action and his writing and the, and the stuff he's doing and seeing now and what he's learned over the past few decades. So thanks for uh, joining us, Ron. Yeah, and this shift uh, to a uh, more balanced view of what Jesus was about. He was concerned about the spiritual well-being of persons, and he made a, a prime uh, in, of prime importance the transformation of people's souls. But right up there with it was his concern for the poor and the oppressed of the world, and the evangelical community has more and more come to see that balance between uh, the spiritual dimensions of salvation and the social dimensions of salvation. And Ron Sider, who we have as a guest, has been one of the leaders in making that happen. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, you know, not, not, not everybody talks about uh, evangelism these days. And in fact, uh, you know, that's kind of a, a, a word I don't, I don't hear a ton um, about, and you know, I, I'm realizing that folks are not growing up, going to Sunday school. You know, there's there, there's uh, been sort of this movement towards justice, but I, I, you know, sometimes it feels like we we might forget to mention Jesus as much as we should. Ron, you want to say something about that? Uh, yes, I uh, am concerned about that. Um, you know, from the beginning when I was uh, a young person, I felt called to help the evangelical world become more engaged in social issues, but I resolved if I could do anything about it, I wouldn't repeat the mistake of 100 years ago where we had one group doing evangelism and the other group doing social action, and um, they pointed to the other, other side's imbalance to justify their own imbalance. And so I want to say at this point in time to younger Christians, please, 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 don't forget uh, about the fact that... Um, 
Jesus is the way, uh, uh, the truth and the life, uh, the only way to the Father. And we need to eagerly, um, gently, um, lovingly, uh, winsomely tell others about him, invite them to um, accept him. I think that's um, uh, absolutely uh, crucial, and um, I sure hope we don't lose that. Well, you know, uh, here at Eastern University, where I've been teaching, and you're related to Eastern University because... Palmer Theological Seminary, where your half-time teacher uh, is uh, the seminary related to Eastern University. Uh, we have uh, been pushing that for a long time. And uh, the thing that uh, concerns me is that uh, so often in our zeal for the poor, we forget that man shall not live by bread alone. They need the spiritual regeneration that comes from introducing people to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, I've made it my business that when I preach, uh, it's got to be a very unusual sermon where I do not start off by talking about the fact that when Jesus went to Calvary, when he died there, when he took upon himself the sins of the world, when he was resurrected and came back to us as the Holy Spirit, that this is essential. It's we, we teach here at Eastern the theology of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is transformed people living in a transformed world. We've got to work on both of those things to communicate what it takes to be transformed as people by Jesus and the Holy Spirit uh, and the, the subjective dimensions of salvation uh, to the transformed world. Uh, when we talk about transforming the world, there's a concept that emerged uh, largely under your leadership that I would like you to expound on. They talk about systemic evil or uh, the transformation of institutions. Could you comment on that? Uh, a lot of people say it's not enough just to feed poor people. You've got to change the system. Could you talk about systemic evil? That's a phrase that I hear kicked around these days. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, in the first edition of My Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, I had a section on um, uh, what I called social sin. And I said that uh, some preachers today, when they talk about sin, talk only about um, um, personal sin, lying, stealing, committing adultery. And other preachers talk only about structural injustice, unjust systems like apartheid or economic systems that are unfair. And the Bible seems to me to care about both. Uh, because both uh, destroy people. Uh, I think the understanding of structural injustice, you can see it blatantly, you know, in something like apartheid or slavery, perfectly legal, but uh, destroyed people, child labor 150 years ago and so on. Uh, but it's around still in tax policies that uh, benefit the very rich and uh, not everyone, uh, and one could go on and on. Uh, I think we've not made a lot of progress um, on that issue. Some younger evangelicals are writing about it now. Um, when my book first came out, I, I did an article for Christianity Today, the most influential evangelical magazine in the U.S., and talked about structural evil. That was 1976, I think. And I thought we'd made more progress, but um, it seems that evangelicals today still think that the way you change society is one person at a time. And that's half right, but the other half is you need to change the systems and structures. The, uh, the situation in the world today is becoming tense because there's an increasing conflict between the Islamic world 
and the uh, Western world, as we say, uh, the world of uh, the Judeo-Christian societal systems. So here's the Muslims on one side. Here's this Western world on the other. Uh, how does how does a group like ESA, Evangelicals for Social Action, how do you steer a course as we deal with this question of what do we do about Islam? They seem to be committed to violence. Uh, is that a valid judgment or is it not a valid judgment? And how do we stand as we try to be peacemakers between uh, an Islamic community, which is often misrepresented in the, in the media as being a bunch of violent people, which they're not, and, uh, and the Christian community, which is often represented as a bunch of violent people, which it's not. So uh, how do we navigate this situation? Yeah, you know, I think for starters, we have to be um, honest with the data. There are some Islamic terrorists, and that uh, is a fact. We need to recognize it. But that's only a small part of the Muslim community. And I think one of the most crucial things that needs to happen in the next um, several decades is that the, the, the Christian center including the Evangelical and Pentecostal Center around the world, the center of those movements need to get into much, much deeper dialogue, um, friendship, understanding, partnership with the center of the Muslim world. Um, it's nice if a few theological liberals on both sides talk, but that's not very interesting because that's not where the bulk of either community is. Uh, and we need deeply committed Christians and deeply committed Muslims to listen to each other talk, and we can um, acknowledge the fact that we differ on some important things. Um, they think um, um, that uh, we're wrong on some things, and we respect that. We think they're wrong on some things. But we also have uh, a good deal in common, and uh, we need to figure out how we can work together in order to avoid a conflict of civilizations, which could be absolutely devastating. Well, I think one of the things, too, is that we... Uh we we create these polarities, but to be honest, uh, I mean the the there are folks that uh, I hear proclaiming my faith, like uh, uh, Reverend Jeffries in in Texas, that yeah. is encouraging everyone to bring guns to church. And I go, I, I'm not sure that we're worshiping the, the same, same the Prince of Peace, the yeah. same Prince yeah. of Peace. And and I have other friends that are Muslim. That uh, the God that they, the character of the God that they love is very, uh, very similar to the character of the God that I worship. So, you know, I, I think, you know, when we look at uh, those things, G Jesus seems to do that too. He's, he's saying, you know, um, there's this guy down the street that's not doing miracles and prophecies, and he's not one of us, say the disciples. And he says, well, if he's not against us, he's for us. And, and maybe we, we need to be quicker to uh, find the, the, the contradictions in our own faith and to build bridges with folks of other faiths that are proclaiming the same peace and, and um, love that we believe in. Uh, Ron, um, I think that's true, but I think we need to keep a balance. One is... Um, to find all the areas of common ground and places where we can work together um, and uh, not distort each other's views. Uh, the other is, to be honest about areas of, of difference, I mean, it really is a major difference that Christians have said from the beginning that the carpenter from Nazareth is true God uh, and that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we've got differences, but they don't need to lead us to fight together. And 
Christians can repent of the past sins against Muslims, like the Crusades and the last hundred years. You know, the Western military power has been dominant, and we've done unfair things to Muslim countries. So we ought to acknowledge that and say, how can we work together? How can we help promote economic development um, and uh, decent societies for you? No, there, there's been a great deal of involvement on your part in what goes on in the Middle East, particularly in, in the Holy Land between Muslims and Jews and Christians. Uh, we only have a, can only give you a minute on this one, so please be brief. Uh, anything going on that score? Well, uh, it's a really almost a despairing situation, but I don't see any solution other than a two-state solution where um, Israelis and Palestinians agree to uh, respect each other and, and have two states. And it's a tragedy that uh, for some time now the Israeli um, prime minister has not really been serious about doing that. And what's frightening um, is that so often... What is, what, is frightening, what is frightening, Ron, sometimes evangelicals are so committed to helping Israel that they forget that we have a commitment to be just towards our Palestinian brothers and sisters as well. Uh, we want to be pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel at the same time. We're wrapping up exactly. the show right now. So, uh, Ron, we want to thank you for being on the show. You always have good things to say. You always remind us that we need the whole gospel for the whole world. We need evangelism and social justice wedded together. And thanks for being that voice out there for the cause of the kingdom. Thanks, Ron. Great. God bless you, brothers. Hello over there in the United Kingdom and yay around the world. This is Tony Campolo, and the name of the show is From Across the Pond. Uh, as I've said the last couple of weeks, I usually have Shane Claiborne with me, but he's away right now. He'll be back on the show when he returns to the land of the living, which is just outside of Philadelphia. That's where I come from. Uh, I teach at Eastern University, St. David's, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. We use the studios of Cabrini University, which sits just across the road from uh, Eastern University. It's a Catholic school a fine Christian institution that has pretty much the same message, message and mission as Eastern, to change the world from what it is into the kind of world that God wants for it to be. We promote Red Letter Christianity. Go to our website, redletterchristians.org. You say, why Red Letter Christians? Here in the United States, many of the Bibles have the words of Jesus highlighted on in red. And we are people who are calling ourselves Red Letter Christians because we're trying to live out the teachings of Jesus Christ, which, as I said just a moment ago, are often highlighted in many Bibles with red letters. I have a guest today, a guy who uh, is a red-letter Christian, if ever there was one. His name is Ronald Sider. Be more formal, Dr. Ronald Sider, who incidentally oh, is Reverend, on the... Reverend Doctor, please. The Reverend... Oh, there, man. The Reverend Doctor... Ronald Sider, who uh, incidentally is a faculty member at, at Palmer Seminary, which is the seminary uh, related to Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Ron. Hi, Tony. Glad to be with you. Okay. Uh, you're part of an effort that has been put together by uh, Jim Wallace, uh, very famous by virtue of the fact that he is the publisher and the editor of Sojourners Magazine. Uh, the movement is called Reclaiming Jesus. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why it's so important? 
Yeah, actually, it was put together by uh, uh, two um, people, um, uh, Jim and um, uh, Bishop Curry, the uh, wonderful uh, presiding bishop of the uh, Episcopal Church in the U.S. who preached at the royal wedding uh, some months ago. Uh, and they called a bunch of us together um, in light of the amazing, uh, astounding political situation in the U.S., to ask, you know, what do Christians have to say about this situation? And we developed a document called Reclaiming Jesus, which um, says Christians must be committed to justice for the poor. We must be committed to truth-telling. We must be committed to um, uh, racial justice and equality and reject uh, all forms of uh, racism. That... uh, is a very important word at this point in time in the U.S. political scene where uh, racism is um, uh, reviving in uh, tragic ways and being appealed to explicitly uh, by a uh, top political leader. Um, and truth-telling becomes uh, just dismissed. Uh, uh, fake news is uh, the slogan that's thrown around. Uh, a democracy doesn't survive if uh, there isn't independent uh, um, media, and uh, if we don't try to seek truth, whether it's on climate change or uh, uh, what happens um, in an election or whatever. So it's an important movement of Christians, and uh, the basic uh, video that uh, um, Tony and uh, um, Jim Wallace and a bunch of us uh, um, helped develop um, has gone to, I think, over 5 million people at this point in time. Good, good. And uh we had a recent gathering in uh, Washington, D.C. a couple of months ago that brought together a couple of thousand people for a rally on reclaiming Jesus because there's a sense that in American Christianity, uh, particularly in the evangelical wing, uh, Jesus has gotten lost. Uh, the Jesus that we find in Scripture who uh, calls people to be one across uh, racial lines, who calls people to embrace peace and love, um, who uh, calls us away from any sexist values. Uh, you mentioned some things that uh, Reclaiming Jesus is, uh, is a movement that says we're tired of politicians, particularly a president who lies. I mean, I got a problem with this guy in Washington, D.C., Donald Trump. Um, the, the, there's a, a media group that keeps track of the lies that leading politicians articulate. Lo, he's over the 5,000 mark uh, five, since getting elected. 5,000 times he has told major lies. Uh, this is scary. Uh, reality for him is whatever he chooses to make it. And if he has to tell lies in order to create his reality, he'll tell lies. And his followers, 81% of them, of evangelicals voted for him, his followers say, uh, we're with you, Donald, we're with you, Donald Trump, and we're saying, wait a minute, we got to be faithful to Jesus, not to the Democratic Party, but to Jesus, and we're tired of the lies. Uh, fake news, I mean, he started off creating fake news by over and over again saying uh, Barack Obama was not born in the United States. Uh, He had a team of people, at least he said, who would go to Hawaii and check out birth certificates and come back with a report. Well, they never did report. Uh, And the reality is that there's overwhelming evidence 
that uh, Barack Obama was born in in Honolulu. Actually, they could produce the. In fact, he released uh, Obama released his uh, birth certificate to prove that that Trump was wrong. You know, Tony, um, that um, that figure, eighty one percent of evangelicals voting for Trump, um, is white evangelicals. Huge footnote, as you know, uh, it was 81% of white evangelicals, and we just had an important meeting that uh, Tony and I were uh, present at in Chicago. It was the 45th anniversary of the Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern. In 73, a bunch of evangelicals, young and old, came together and issued this really quite historic uh, appeal for evangelicals to be more informed, more engaged on justice and racial justice and the dignity of women and so on. And um, we, we visited that. And one of the things we said in a declaration that's been released recently is to say it's simply wrong factually um, the way the papers tend to suggest that overwhelmingly evangelicals supported Trump. Uh, white evangelicals did, but uh, the African-American church, they don't use the label because of white racism, but they uh, are um, thoroughly evangelical in their theology and concern for evangelism. That's um, probably uh, 19% of evangelicals. The Latino Protestant church, again, uh, are not uh, pro-Trump, and uh, they're evangelicals, uh, Asian-Americans. When you put all that group together, probably uh, at least 40% of evangelicals in the U.S. are not uh, right-wing persons politically. And so um, uh, I I know you don't know this, Tony, but it's important for people around the world to understand that it's simply not true that uh, 81% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump or support that kind of right-wing, anti-woman, racist, uh, unconcerned for the poor, uh, nationalism that says we'll go it alone regardless of what other people do, other nations do. Uh, That's um, uh, overstated and misunderstood. Well, let me just uh, add to that, that there are some things that are happening under Donald Trump's administration that have really benefited the poor. Uh, for instance, he's uh, created, or the American economy now, uh, has driven down the uh, level of unemployment. I mean, uh, the unemployment rate in this country, uh, United States, is is at the lowest it has been for uh, more than 50 years. And uh, jobs are being created at a record rate. And the African-American community, which has its problems with the racism that has often been articulated by Donald Trump, saying we we don't like his views on race, but we have to say uh, more jobs have been created for African American people than uh, than has been the case under any administration in the last forty or fifty years. Uh, he well, has created jobs I think among even that. Even that has to be um, nuanced a, a lot more. I mean, the economic uh, renewal uh, that brought the unemployment rate down somewhere in the area of 4% uh, happened under Barack Obama. Uh, And um, it's true that Trump has done a few things. His tax cut that went mainly for the rich uh, probably has increased the economy a little bit, but uh, long term, you know, it's uh, largely... uh, helped the rich. So Trump is not uh, in any way to be given most of the credit for, 
for the fact that the black unemployment rate uh, is down at historic lows, and it's still about double what the white unemployment rate is. That should be noted. Um, Having said that, um, the Chicago Declaration, which came out uh, 45 years ago, had a major impact on the evangelical community. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, 45 years ago, um, most um, white evangelicals certainly were saying that the primary mission of the church is saving souls. Uh, Their focus was on evangelism. Uh, They were not much engaged um, on social issues during the great civil rights movement of Dr. King. White evangelicals at best were silent and not involved, just a handful of younger uh, folk uh, engaged um, with Dr. King. And in fact, um, many white evangelicals, Terry Falwell, were even opposed. Um, Terry Falwell said uh, then that Dr. King was a preacher and he was supposed to focus on preaching and evangelism, not uh, not politics. Yeah, and may I add at this particular point, uh, Christianity Today, which is like the major uh, magazine among those who call themselves evangelicals, uh, referred to Donald Trump, as, uh, rather uh, referred to uh, Martin Luther King as a rabble rouser, as an inciter to riot. These are actual quotes from them. They labeled him as, as a neo-Marxist. Uh, they saw him as the enemy of the church. Uh, everybody says nice things about Martin Luther King these days, but 50 years ago, or 45 uh, years ago, when the uh, Chicago Declaration first went out, that was not the case. And to make such a strong statement against racism as that statement did make uh, was looked upon as a kind of a a dramatic departure from what the evangelical church was into at that particular point. And it caught a lot of attention in the media right away. Um, The evening television news uh, um, on the Friday evening of the event um, uh, featured um, a statement um, uh, by uh, Bill Pinnell, who was one of the plenary speakers, uh, and immediately afterward, all kinds of media talked about it. Uh, so, yeah, it was an important. Uh, it was one of the things, uh, many things that led to those on covenant uh, a year later, uh, saying that evangelism and social responsibility are both part of our duty as Christians. And the result has been uh, over the last um, um, 50 or so years, a major change in the evangelical world. I think uh, increasing concern and awareness that God is a special concern for the poor, and certainly uh, moving away from saying that we're just supposed to do evangelism to saying we're supposed to do evangelism and um, social action and work for justice in society. Now, the agenda, of course, the big question is, you know, what does justice in society look like? Um, does it mean uh, tax cuts for um, uh, the, the richest um, 10% uh, or does it mean uh, measures that would empower um, the people at the bottom? And uh, that's, of course, what's being debated now in this country. This is Tony Campolo. The name of the show is From Across the Pond. Uh, it, today, I'm uh, interviewing for our show a special guest. He's a personal friend of mine. Ron Sider. He wrote a book uh, several years ago called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Uh, That book has now been reissued uh, and it's still a a hot book to buy. Uh, I seldom go into any kind of 
uh, pastoral library. As I go out speaking in churches, they usually have me sit in the pastor's office and I look around to see if he has any of my books on the shelf. And uh, sometimes they do, but almost without exception, I find that pastors have copies of Ron Sider's book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Uh, Ron Sider comes out of the what we call the Anabaptist tradition, and not Baptist and the Baptist tradition, uh, often referred to as the Radical Reformation uh, at the time that the Reformation was taking place. You have a new book out uh, which deals with biblical pacifism. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this new book? Uh, yeah, you know, in the 16th century, uh, the people called Anabaptists and Mennonites are now the kind of the modern uh, word for those folk, uh, they believe two pretty radical things. One is they thought that the church should be separate from the state, uh, and that was a radical departure from the thousand plus years of uh, Christian history. And they also thought that Jesus taught that people shouldn't kill. Uh, and uh, for both of those reasons, we got uh, killed by the hundreds, if not thousands. But um, I uh, want to go back in this book and ask a simple question. If we believe that Jesus is true God as well as true man, then surely we have to take seriously what he says. And he's clearly said that killing, that I'm sorry, he's clearly said that his followers are supposed to love their enemies. Now, when he said love their enemies, I doubt that he meant we're supposed to kill them. Uh, and so I developed uh, my best and uh, longest book on this, uh, uh, several hundred pages, uh, kind of a scholarly uh, volume, uh, dealing with all of the issues. How do we deal with the Old Testament? Uh, what to, about the atonement? Uh, and most of all, Jesus' gospel of the kingdom. Uh, and the kingdom's breaking in now, and Jesus' people are going to live Jesus' kingdom now, and I think one important part of what that means is to love our enemies. And so we need to figure out how to do that in our world. The, the early church, I mean, a lot of people say we've got to get back to the uh, teachings and the lifestyle of Christians who are part of the early church. Uh, could you talk about the early church? Were they uh, into this kind of Christian pacifism or nonviolent resistance, as Shane Claiborne likes to yeah. call it? And were they into it? And uh, what happened? Yeah. Well, uh, in order to prepare for this book that I uh, have just finished, it'll come out in a couple of months, I wanted to be sure I really understood what the early church uh, said and did. And in spite of the hundreds of books and articles, thousands of articles, nobody had ever collected everything that's now extant in existence on what the early church did and did on killing. And I did that in a book called The Early Church on Killing. Um, and I collected everything that deals with abortion, with capital punishment, uh, with uh, killing in war. And there is not one single statement by the early church which says that killing uh, is okay, up until the time of Constantine um, in the early 4th century. Every time they deal with the topic of killing, whether it's abortion or capital punishment or war, uh, the writers say Christians must not do that. Now, it's also true that uh, a few people in the, in the late 2nd century and then uh, uh, more Christians uh, by the late 3rd century and early 4th century were in the Roman army. But in terms of what the church teaches, it always said, uh, until Constantine in the early 4th century, uh, killing is wrong. 
The other thing I wanted to do in preparation for this book was to uh, write another book, uh, which I called Nonviolent Action. Uh, and there I talk about the amazing success of nonviolent campaigns in the last 50 or 75 years. King and Gandhi, but uh, solidarity in Poland, the Philippines overthrow of the dictator Marcos, on and on. We now have clear evidence that nonviolent action works. And so the standard response to a pacifist, which is, um, as C.S. Lewis said, surely you're not going to simply stand aside and let somebody uh, walk past you and, and kill your neighbor. And I think Lewis is right. But that assumes that there are only two options. Either you kill or you do nothing. And the nonviolent uh, movement uh, that we've seen in our time demonstrates that there's always a third option. We can kill we can do nothing, or we can work nonviolently. And nonviolence, in fact, uh, works amazingly well with a great deal of frequency. Could you give us some examples of that? Yeah. Well, um, um, solidarity in Poland uh, was uh, dealing with um, a vicious um, communist dictatorship supported by the Russians. Um, and um, they led a nonviolent movement, and eventually they won. Uh, the same thing happened uh, in East in Germany, uh, in the Philippines, uh, there was a vicious dictator, Marcos, who was ruthless, killed people. Um, people thought that the only way he'd be overthrown was by a 10-year uh, violent um, revolution. But um, uh, after he tried to steal another election, uh, the people came out in the streets. The Catholic um, uh, cardinal called on the sisters to pray and the people to uh, stand, come out into the streets. And a million or more people did. And um, eventually the army wouldn't obey his orders uh, and he had to flee. Uh, and uh, a democratic uh, uh, election was um, validated. Uh, the, uh, the the list just goes on and on. In Liberia, uh, the women uh, were faced with a terrible dictator, uh, uh, President Taylor, and um, the women started to uh, march nonviolently, uh, and eventually they succeeded in getting him overthrown. So there's lots and lots of evidence. In fact, there's a, a scholarly book that came out a few years ago that investigated uh, the 300 most important examples of violent and nonviolent um, uh, campaigns in the last uh, hundred years. And they discovered that uh, the nonviolent the non campaigns were a lot more likely to succeed than the violent campaigns. That's interesting. And furthermore, after the battle was over, violent or nonviolent, uh, the likelihood that the state would be democratic was much, much higher when the campaign was nonviolent. So it works. Well, let me uh, say, uh, you're going to be asked the question of where the rubber hits the road. Every time the question of nonviolent resistance or biblical pacifism comes to the fore, uh, the question, and I want to know how you handle this, because I'm sure you've handled it over and over again. Somebody breaks into your house, is about to rape your wife and kill your children. Uh, do you stand by and simply say, in the name of Jesus, stop? Or do you do something? Uh, what's your response to that? Well, I mean, two things. I mean, one is that a nonviolent resistance is certainly, I think, quite in keeping with Jesus. He marched into the temple, overturned the uh, money changers' tables. He didn't kill anybody. Uh, he didn't even use the whip on people. But, uh, you know, he certainly resisted evil. So I would have no trouble um, resisting that kind of, kind of person if I thought I had much of a chance. The fact is, I doubt that uh, 
even if I had a gun, uh, I would be very successful in defending them. Uh, so I would, um, I would pray and trust the Lord, um, command him in the name of the risen Jesus. I command you to stop. Um, it's simply wrong to say that the options are only do nothing or kill. Uh, there's always a third option in a personal situation um, and um, in uh, much larger social situations. You know, St. Augustine, the uh, the great Christian who, who really began the just war tradition and defending Christians' right, um, not right, but arguing that they should engage in warfare to defend um, a decent society, Augustine said that it's wrong to kill in one's personal life. It's only justified in society. So Augustine would have said in response to the kind of scene you uh, described, uh, no, I should pray. I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't try to kill that attacker. You're a very orthodox Christian, and uh, you hold to the doctrines that are stated in the Apostles' Creed. You, you look at the Bible as not an ordinary book, but a book that was written by people who were imbued with the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote became the infallible guide for faith and practice. You talk about having a personal relationship with the resurrected Jesus. So you, you're orthodox in those, in, in those words. Um, my, my question is, uh, in the minute or so that's left, uh, what is your uh, appraisal and why do you feel so negative towards uh, Donald Trump? Well, you know, I, I think that one has to ask, what are biblical principles that relate to society? Uh, and justice for the poor is a crucial one. Um, uh, opposition to racism is one. Uh, truth-telling is one. The dignity and equality of women is one. Uh, caring for the environment is one. Um, I think uh, concern for the sanctity of human life is one. And on that one, uh, I think that... Uh, uh, in spite of what he personally believes, uh, Donald Trump has made appointments to the Supreme Court that will probably help somewhat on uh, the sanctity of human life with reference to the specific issue of abortion. But on all the others, uh, he's simply doing things that uh, are contrary to fundamental biblical norms. I mean, to um, decide to um, withdraw from the Paris Accord that would protect our children and grandchildren from uh, devastating global warming, that's simply immoral, denies the scientific facts, uh, and it's fundamentally immoral. So his policies, uh, his nationalism, America first, is simply contrary to biblical teaching that every person is made in the image of God, that the Christian people at least are more committed to the global body of Christ than they are to their own nation. And so he's, he's holding up, uh, he's implementing values that are fundamentally contrary to important biblical truth. Well, thank you, Ron. My, my guest today on the show has been Ronald Sider, uh, the Reverend Doctor Ron Sider, uh, a pretty prestigious guy. I mean, he has his doctorate from Yale Divinity School, which is uh, really at the top of the line. Uh, he teaches at Palmer Seminary, and uh, he's been our guest, and I'm glad to have you on the show. Tune in next week across the pond here on Premier Radio. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. 
but at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.